This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Well, hello and welcome to the program. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few minutes, Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunick will join us from the Zuckerman Law Group in Surrey and Yaletown to talk family law and to take your calls on issues like divorce, custody, and prenuptial agreements. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. After much doom and gloom speculation, including about a complete shutdown, this week Sears Canada announced that it's applied for creditors' protection, the equivalent of chapter after 11 bankruptcy in the states and plans to reorganize and shed 59 of its current stores and eliminate 2,900 jobs. Unlike its American counterpart and other department store chains, things have been looking up at Sears Canada sort of. It improved its same store sales over the last two quarters, but its overall sales, including online sales, are down, even as the chain is in the middle of a campaign to modernize and renovate stores and remake its image. Will this move be enough to salvage the company? Not everyone is convinced, including a former Sears CEO, but they had to do something. Like its American cousin and many other department stores on both sides of the border, especially in the States, Sears Canada has been struggling as shoppers' tastes shift away from department store offerings. And here's a disturbing fact that will bring zero comfort to its workers. Sears is short more than $300 million Canadian on its obligations to retirees. Equally disturbing to those of us with accounts at the Royal was the news this week that RBC is slashing 450 mostly head office jobs, not so cleverly disguised as hundreds of changes that will allow the bank to, quote, focus on the capabilities that we need now in the future and in the future. A close quote. The moves include many promotions and transfers alongside the firings, which RBC, who made over $2 billion in profit in the last quarter alone, says is an important consolidation of resources. Truth is, the bank has been following trends among its customers, and the next big customer group, the millennials, don't go to banks and aren't interested in many forms of traditional banking. The perfect excuse to cut staff and reduce personal contact and access even more. RBC employs around 80,000 Canadians full and part-time and, of course, insists returns to investors will continue to be strong. Here's a news item we were hoping to hear, kind of. Canadian consumer spending in April was stronger than expected, which economists say adds credibility to the Bank of Canada's recent comments that interest rate hikes could be on the way, so there's the kind of part. Statistics Canada reported Thursday that retail sales for April rose by 0.8% on a monthly basis. If you take out sales of vehicles and parts, retail sales climbed 1.5% month over month on a dollar basis to $48.5 billion. Both numbers beat analysts' expectations by a fairly wide margin. In dollar terms, building material stores were up, along with clothing stores, electronics, 
electronic stores and general merchandisers. Now, here's the consumer downside to the story. Economists said the latest numbers on retail activity are in line with the Bank of Canada's recent statements on the Canadian economy, which have encouraged speculation of possible interest rate hikes coming sooner than had been expected. This week, economists from BMO, TD, and CIBC all rang in with thoughts about a likely Canadian interest rate hike now expected this October. The next possible window for a rate increase is July 12th, but nothing is expected at that time except more blunt warnings to Canadians to get our houses in order before the rates do start to go up. Meanwhile, south of the border, another U.S. interest rate hike of a quarter percent went into effect just two weeks ago. And here's another offering from the Tesla file. And this just after we reported on the company's new program for solar roof products, too. Tesla is now working on its own streaming music service to be available in all their new cars. Now, obviously, these new cars can already connect to Spotify or Apple Music or Pandora. But Elon Musk and his team believe this service will be popular with Tesla owners. Now, the big trick to pulling this off is getting the music companies on side to do deals for their products. And industry insiders say that's already underway because the music industry is not anxious to see any one distribution outfit have too much control on the market. From a consumer point of view, this is good news because with more choices, we all win. Those are some of the top stories we're following this week. We'll have a few more later on in the show. We'll also have a steel report for you, too. But up next, lawyers Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink and your questions on family law. Let's open up the phone lines right now, as a matter of fact, with two lawyers in studio and free legal advice dangling in front of you. We might as well tell you that if you'd like some, you can call away at 604-280-9898. My gosh, the lines are ringing already. 604-280-9898. The subject is family law, and we'll get to it right after this on News Talk 980 CKNW. It's a warm one coming up to 1114 in Vancouver on this lovely Sunday. Sterling Fox with you, joined in studio by a couple of lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group in Surrey and in Yaletown. Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunick are family law lawyers. Gentlemen, welcome to Vancouver Consumer. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Sterling. Glad to be here. Good morning. And we have calls already on the phone board. I guess once, once you offer free legal advice on a Sunday morning, uh, people are going to go, well, why the heck not? Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, it's 604-280-9898. And uh, Carol will get to your question in just a couple of minutes. But first, uh, a moment or two with our guest, Stuart Zuckerman. Uh, you've been a lawyer for 28 years. Ron, you've been practicing the law for 25 years. You work out of the Yale Town office, Ron. And Stuart, you're at home base in Surrey, which is where? Uh, it's uh, at the corner of 150. It's at the corner of 152nd and Highway 10, just one block south of Highway 10, um, at on the corner of 54A Avenue and 152nd Street. And how long has uh, Zuckerman, the Zuckerman Law Group, been around uh, for clients in Surrey uh, on family law matters? Uh, well, I, I originally started my practice in Vancouver, and then in 1994 till about 1998, I was in Surrey, and then back in Vancouver for a number of years, and then I've been in Surrey or the South Surrey area for the for the past five years or so. Okay. Okay, and Ron, you, you're uh, running the show down in Yaletown. Uh, as busy as the Surrey office or busier? 
Well, I have to say, we're not uh, nearly as busy as the Surrey office, and I think it has a, a lot to do with some interesting demographics. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about family law. Between the two of you and all those 50-plus years of experience, what is the most common, uh, commonly cited reason for breakdowns in interpersonal relationships, Stuart? Well, typically uh, what I hear is that the parties stopped listening to each other or hearing each other at some point during their marriage or their relationship. So one party had a complaint, um, they they would voice that complaint, and the other party would either uh, poo-poo it or not listen to it or respond to it at all. And over a number of years, um, parties would say that their communications broke down, they stopped listening to each other mm. or caring about what the other person said, resentment build up, um, and then things like money issues um, or... Uh, uh, sexual issues, if there's uh, nothing's happening in the bedroom or mm-hmm. somebody's looking outside the relationship, all those things tend to uh, uh, arise once the communication has broken down, when the parties aren't listening to each other uh, anymore. And those money issues, Ron, can be the can be the most obvious signs of discontent, but generally they're the they're the symptom rather than the disease, right? Well, I think there's a little bit of both, but what you'll often find is that uh, most married couples don't spend nearly enough time talking about their finances, planning their finances, and making sure that they line up with their own dreams. There are a lot of marriages that should last a lot longer than they do, but they don't. Sorry to say that, folks, but once that um, uh, resentment builds up, uh, it can have any source, but in many cases it's financial. Once the resentment builds up, it's very hard to step back. And Stuart, just before we go to the phones, you know, you hear this from a lot of grandparents and people have been married and been through the wars for decades. And they'll say say things like, you know, the divorce rate is at least 50%. It has been for decades, right? And and not improving, no signs of improving in in terms of those numbers. And a lot of uh, older married people will say, you know, uh, and Ron alluded to this a second ago, there's a fair bit of work involved. It's, it's it's, It's not something that comes naturally. You actually have to work at a relationship and it's a work in progress until you die. Yes. And if you don't acknowledge the need to work, then it's probably not going to work out. I, I agree. Uh, there, there's no question that you have to work on communications. You have to work on hearing each other. Uh, you have to work on meeting each other's needs and listening to each other. All those things uh, need to be a constant in order for a marriage to be successful and to be long-lasting. Now, that's not a sentence to a life of drudgery by any means, Ron, but you get what they mean when they talk about work and effort being put into a relationship. Absolutely. When you're buying the, uh, when you're buying the new Lamborghini, it's pretty shiny, and you think there's not going to be any maintenance with it. It looks pretty good next to the old Chevy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then, surprise, surprise, <laughs> it's a car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you got to find a mechanic. Yes. Nothing like it. Let's get to the phones. And uh, we'll start with Carol. Uh, good morning, and uh, welcome to Vancouver Consumer. Carol, you're with us. Oh, hi, yes. Okay. I have a question for Stuart. Yes, go ahead, please. Yeah, so my ex was earning over $130,000 a year and was paying child support to me of about $1,500 a month for the past three years. And uh, now he's lost his job, and he says he's only making $45,000 a year, and he wants to cut his child support way back to less than it was. My girlfriend told me that if we go to court, um, they'll use the average income over his last three years to determine child support payments. But my ex says it's only based on his current income. So I'm wondering which is it? Oh, good question. Stuart? It, it, it's an excellent question, and it's a question that we often end up in court over. Um, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that your girlfriend gave you that um, legal advice, because a lot of people listen to their girlfriends or their brothers or their sisters or buddies, 
uh, rather than uh, consulting with a lawyer. Most lawyers in uh, in Vancouver will will provide free initial consultations, and it's always worth discussing these issues with a lawyer rather than relying on what you hear from your girlfriend. Um, the the law, although the child support guidelines, which governs the issue of child support, does talk about an averaging of three years of income, that is typically used when a person has a fluctuating income. So if you have someone like a a salesman, a commission salesman, who one year might earn eighty thousand, the next year might earn one ten, the next year might earn seventy, and the next year might earn one thirty, sure, that's the kind of person that you average their income because their income is unpredictable. Um, but if somebody had a history of high income and then loses their job, um. Uh, then and then goes to a lower uh, income, the court will generally use uh, the lower income. There is a case I, that I went to court on called Hepner and Jilly. You can look it up online. The, the site for it would be 2010 BCSE, which stands for BC Supreme Court, right. 1020. And in that case, uh, the, Mr. Jilly, my client, had worked on the Camby Road uh, construction for the, for the, uh, the, the Skytrain oh, for, yeah. for many years and was earning over, well over 130000 a year doing that job. And then, uh, you know, in his, and in his 60s, uh, still doing that job, when the, when the tunnel was complete, uh, he lost the job and he went to a much lower paying job. And his spouse wanted him to continue to pay child support based on his average and, and they wouldn't settle despite our efforts we went to court and uh, i cited uh, in that case a, a court of appeal decision from the uh, saskatchewan uh, 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 sorry the alberta court of appeal which stated that it's the current income that the court should look at if somebody is in a new job rather than averaging previous years um, if they were in the same job currently you could average previous years but if you're in a new job you look at the current income not the old income so carol it sounds like uh, at least an opportunity to sit down uh, for, for a conversation with a family lawyer like Stuart or Ron here. Uh, and as Stuart mentioned, most family firms will uh, pro- provide you with an initial consultation at no charge to at least give you a chance to see what kind of legal leg you have to stand on. Yes. And then the lawyer can draft a, if you if you retain a lawyer, the lawyer can draft a demand letter to your spouse, can cite the case law that supports their position, and try to negotiate a settlement rather than putting you to the expense of going to court to fight over it. Right. Okay. Uh, back to the phones. Amanda, thank you for waiting. Good morning. Hi, hi. My question is for Stuart. I I have a case where the grandmother the grandmother is interfering with my parenting. I'm the mother, and the child now resides with the grandmother and refuses to come home, refuses to go to school, and just stays home with her grandmother every day. Amanda, how old is the child in question? Um, when I filed in court, she was eleven. She's now thirteen. Okay. So we were sent to the family justice counselor which is a court-appointed assessor for low-income people. Uh, And the family justice counselor wrote a 211 report that is a verbatim report, as I understand it, that does not properly look at the grandmother's interference through the underlying alienation of the child from myself as a mother. And so my question is how to get the 211 report set aside. Well, that's going to require a hearing where the author of the 211 report is subpoenaed to the hearing and is cross-examined um, uh, by a lawyer um, who, and that the, and that the judge is satisfied through the cross-examination 
that the 211 author failed to um, meet their duties in writing the report, failed to consider things they should consider. Judges are heavily influenced in family law by 211 reports. 211 reports, it refers to Section 211 of the Family Law Act, for our listeners out there who don't know, uh, and that, that act under Section 211 allows the court to appoint an expert, could be a child psychologist, could be a counselor, could be a family justice uh, counselor, um, to interview the mother and the father, to go to their homes and see their interaction typically the mother and the father, uh, to go to their homes and see their interaction with the child and to interview collaterals and then make a report to the court with recommendations. Um, I have had a case where an, an expert, uh, uh, a well-known expert in uh, child support, uh, wrote a report, for example, claiming that my client, the mother, had alienated the uh, young daughter from the father and recommended uh, increasing the time with the father and the daughter. And uh, when I cross-examined uh, that expert in front of Justice Bernie over the course of uh, two days, the judge came to the conclusion that he would not accept the opinion of the expert uh, because her her opinion was based on false statements that had been given to her by the father, and we were able to prove that those statements were false, um, so the, that her report was no longer reliable. So each case turns on its own situation. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a difficult task. You have to. It's it's great to have a lawyer who's experienced. If you're going to look for somebody to cross examine and be effective in cross examination, there's an art to that. And and in addition to the cross examination of the, that witness. You you would bring other witnesses to court to give testimony that would support your position over the position of the the other party to convince the judge on a balance of probabilities what's in the best interest of the child. So Amanda Amanda's okay. question uh, it can be done yes but it's not easy that's correct all right does that help Amanda yes it does thank uh, you very much you're quite welcome uh, thank you for calling this morning as we move right through a lot of calls here six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight our guests from the Zuckerman Law Group are Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink and uh, Ken's on the line with a question for us good morning Ken good morning go ahead to our lawyer guest go ahead Ken hi there uh, Ron my son is 22 and he lives with his mother and he's refused to speak with me in many years because well, this is a little embarrassing, but I had an affair 10 years ago. And his mom turned the son against me. So I paid child support until he was 19. And uh, I thought that was the end of it. My ex says that my son is going to attend college in September. And that she wants me to start paying child support for him again. I think he's only going to go to school part-time because he has a part-time job. So do I have to pay? Like, my son refuses to communicate with me. Well, that's an and, interesting one. You know, Stuart did a case. How do I have to pay for it? I thought he was an adult. He's 22. Stuart did a case a few years ago called Farden and Farden, and he's uh, mentioned that recently, I think. And the essence of it is, if your son has cut off the relationship with you, and you can show that in a court, a judge is going to say, this child no longer deserves support. But if you can't show that, and I have to say that a lot of judges are going to be very reluctant to do that on the first go-round. You might have to go in, uh, apply, fail, and go in uh, six or 12 months later and say, my son's still not talking to me, he's still not having any relationship with me, even though I've been supporting him for the last six months or a year. And in that case, the principles in Varden and Farden would suggest that you should get an order that says he is on his own. He's an adult. If he's old enough, to cut off dad out of his life, he's old enough to pay his way. And, and so, uh, how, and the process there, uh, does that help at all, Ken, by the way? It does, thank you. Um, 
Uh, yeah, if you could talk about the process a little bit, that'd be helpful. Okay, all right, we will do that. Uh, we got about a minute before we need to break for the news. Stuart, what's the deal? I would just add, in terms of the Farden and Farden case, which has been cited across Canada about fifteen hundred times, that in in that case, there's a whole series of factors that are to be considered, and our 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 court of appeal in Darlington and Darlington has said the, this case still applies after the guidelines. For a child over 19, you have to look at uh, the extent to which the child is earning income and how much is he earning. Uh, has he applied for loans or bursaries? Is he pursuing a study, a, a course of studies in full-time or part-time? Will that course of studies lead to him being self-sufficient? All of those questions go to the, the extent of the dependency of the child on the parent, and you have to prove that the child is unable to withdraw from that dependency. And the court may say that the child has financial responsibility perhaps to a third or 25% or more of his own expenses uh, rather than full child support being paid and, and child support is the responsibility of both parents as well. So the, the court may apportion between the two parents and the child uh, the schooling expense if the child is indeed going full-time to school. And and um, But this there is this issue of communication with parents and there is a principle in the Farden case that if the child is an adult and is unilaterally cut off uh, for no good reason communication with their parent, that may be a decision that, that leads them into adulthood and a from from dependence on their parent. And can the process begins again with a consultation with a family lawyer? Yes. And uh, we need to take a break for the news. Uh, 604-280-9898. Uh, Jeff, you're up next when we return with our legal guests, Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink from the Zuckerman Law Group on Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980 CKNW. And welcome back to the program. Sterling Fox with you this Sunday morning at 1134 with a couple of lawyers in studio from the Zuckerman Law Group in Surrey and in Yaletown. We have Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink with us. Uh, Mr. Hunink runs the Yaletown office. Stuart Zuckerman is out in charge of the Surrey office out there on uh, 152nd Street. Uh, We've been taking quite a number of calls. We have uh, some callers still left on the board. And uh, Jeff, we'll get to your family law question in just a second. And thanks for your patience. Gentlemen, back in 20... 2013, uh, the, uh, there was a new Family Law Act introduced here in British Columbia uh, that's still very much in effect that, uh, that uh, changed a few things. What were the biggest changes that we still live with in the summer of 2017? Well, Sterling, the biggest change uh, under the Family Law Act as compared to the Family Relations Act that preceded it is that uh, now uh, our courts uh, treat unmarried couples, uh, that is common law couples, who have spouses who have been in a marriage-like relationship for two years or more, they treat them the exact same way as if uh, as they would treat married couples. So prior to 2013, if you were married, you had that presumption of a 50-50 entitlement to the assets on a marriage breakdown. Mm-hmm. But if you were unmarried, if you were in a common law uh, situation prior to 2013, there was no such presumption. In fact, you would have to sue under something called unjust enrichment or constructive trust, a very expensive civil litigation type of suit to prove what you had contributed to the property and and no presumption in favor of the suing spouse, even if you had been common law for 20 years. However, under the FLA, as soon as you've been together for two years or more in a spousal-like relationship, then everything that either party accumulates from the date of cohabitation until the date of separation is subject to a presumption of a 50-50 entitlement uh, on the breakdown of the relationships. That means equity in a home Mm -hmm. that increases over those years or or, um, RRSP monies that increase or savings in a bank account or assets that are acquired. All of it is 50-50 unless the parties have a written agreement to the the contrary. Uh, All of it is 50-50 on the breakdown of a common law relationship. That was one of the key changes in the 2013 uh, Family Law Act. And, And then another major change had to do with custody and guardianship. I'll let Ron talk about that. 
Well, it changes in custody and guardianship. Our custody isn't a word in the Family Law Act anymore, and guardianship is. Uh, also, there's no, the, we don't have custody issues in B.C. anymore? Well, no, we do oh. under the Divorce Act. Ah, that's a, that that's a federal to, matter, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, and that leads to another thing. If you, if, if you were never married, you can't claim under the Divorce Act, obviously. Right. Or should be obvious. But at any rate, the Family Law Act is now far more nuanced than the old Family Relations Act was in terms of things that kids actually need from their parents when they separate. And so the focus is always on the best interests of the children. But... The focus is also under the New Family Law Act under parental responsibility. And so a lot of what used to be found only in case law is now set out specifically and clearly, fairly clearly, in the Family Law Act, so it's much more user-friendly. Yeah, and, and the whole idea behind a lot of the new language in the Family Law Act is to avoid court. And yet both of you are court veterans. You go to court a lot, both of you. It's impo- this is an important question, guys. Uh, not all lawyers go to court. In fact, many lawyers are terrified of the idea of going to court. In a family law matter where court could become a possibility, how important is it for a client to know that his or her lawyer should push come to shove, can go to court, and win? Well, you, you, you must, if you're going to be in a family law dispute in which, a, in which litigation has been commenced, you must have a lawyer who is experienced in the courtroom and is willing to go to court. It's not, you know, lawyers should never encourage their clients to go to court. Court is always very expensive. You're putting the hands of your clients in the, in the judgment of a, a stranger, a judge who's never met them before and basically just hears their story quickly and then makes a decision that can affect their lives. So you always try to convince a client to settle and, and focus on settlement and negotiation and collaboration if you can right. to resolve matters. But when you have an unreasonable spouse or an uncompromising spouse who's just taking an uh, untenable position and you have to go to court, you, you have to have a lawyer with experience in going to court who can stand up and passionately and aggressively present your case to the court and competently present your case to the court in order to convince a judge to rule on your side. Uh, and uh, as you know, Ron's been doing this for 25 years. He's in trial every month or two or three. He's in trial. He goes to court a lot. I go to court a lot. I'm in chambers every week or every second week uh, uh, seeking a uh, orders for interim applications, and I'm in trial every year. Uh, so between us, we have tons of experience uh, before the courts, before our provincial court, our Supreme Court, and even our Court of Appeal um, in dealing with family law matters. All right. Good to know. And, and I think an important question for, for uh, people with uh, family law issues to understand, because despite the fact that, as you say, Stuart, quite rightly, court is bloody expensive, sometimes it does become necessary. Yeah. All right. That's back to the phones. And Jeff, thanks for your patience, sir. Good morning. Hello. Yes, hello. Uh, hi, Stuart. Go ahead, Jeff, to our, our guest, please. What's your question? Uh, my question my ex and I have recently separated. Uh, we have children right now. They're four and five years old. And we live in the lower mainland. And my ex is telling me she wants to take her two kids and move back to Ontario, where she uh. has family members there. Okay. And I get the point of the question. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to have to put you on hold because the, the, the quality on, on your cell phone feed is dreadful. However, both lawyers understand the nature, at least, of your circumstances. Any comments, Stuart? This happens. You know, well, I'm from Ontario. Um, you know, I moved out here to live with you. This didn't work out. I'm going and I'm taking the kids back to Ontario. Yeah. See ya. So this is the issue of child relocation. Um, it's a very common issue. It's a very difficult issue. 
issue. It's hard to predict what a court will do with it. The Family Law Act, uh, under Section 69 of the Family Law Act, uh, the court is mandated to consider whether the proposed relocation is made in good faith. That's the first step for the court. If the court finds that the person who wants to move has made a good faith decision to move, in other words, if they're not just moving to punish the other's spouse right. or to get back at the out of vengeance, etc., but they have a good a good faith reason for the move, um, then the the uh, then the court looks at the next step, which is has the person who wants to relocate proposed reasonable and workable arrangements to preserve the relationship between the child and the child's other guardians or persons who are in, entitled to contact with the child. And if both of those things are met, then the court has a presumption in favor of the allowing the move. But the test is always uh, what is in the best interests of the children. And of course, part of that test as well is if the parties have a substantially equal uh, parenting time schedule with the children prior to the move, then the, the parent who wants to move may not be entitled to that presumption that the move is in favor of the, in the best interest of the child. The court will actually, when the, when the cl- parents have like a 50-50 arrangement, it's a much more stringent test and a more objective viewpoint without presumptions um, that allows the court to hear, hear evidence and decide what is in fact in the best interest of the child. We recently, our, our firm just went to trial in the month of March. There's a decision uh, called CLP versus DRP from our uh, Supreme Court of uh, BC, and that cites all the law about relocation. Uh, in that case, our, our lawyer was able to, in fact, Tim Starr, one of our uh, junior lawyers in our firm, took that to trial and was able to, uh, pre- on, on behalf of our client, prevent the move that was proposed to Australia. Uh, the court found, even though there was good faith on the part of the mother, um, that the arrangements that uh, the mother proposed for the father's time with the child and the costs of traveling, etc., would, right. would not be uh, workable and would not be that the move would not be in the best interest of the child. We were successful in preventing the move. But it's very hard to predict whether on a relocation application, whether you're going to be successful or not. It depends on the judge. It depends on the witnesses. Um, Iran has, has also handled uh, uh, relocation cases in the past. I don't know if he has any comments to add. Any thoughts here, Ron, before we move on to our next call? Absolutely. These cases are all very much fact-driven. If you want to peer into the mind of a judge, you sit down and think to yourself, if the move happened, how does Johnny's life or Janie's or both of their lives change in their relationship with me? If it looks like it changes fundamentally in a bad way, you're getting the gut feeling that the judge, we hope, is going to get. Mm, interesting. Okay. And again, another obvious circumstance under which the advice of a professional is absolutely compulsory. Back to the phones. Harge, good morning. Thanks for waiting. Hello, Mr. Fox. Uh, first, I'd like to say I really enjoy your show and I uh, appreciate the time you put into it. Thank you. Uh, my question is for uh, Mr. Zuckerman. Um, I don't know if you recall me, Mr. Zuckerman, but you assisted me in my divorce in 2013. Um, it's hard, and I have a young daughter. And uh, I recall you very well. Oh, you do? Oh, great. Perfect. And I was surprised you're on air, and I thought I'd take the opportunity to pose a question. Um, my question, uh, Stuart, is that uh, I intend to purchase a house in the near future, and I have a large amount of stocks. And when I go to cash them out, obviously it's going to influence my bottom line. Uh, will that influence my payments for the following year? Because it's just a one-time cash out for you know uh, a large sum for a large you know, purchase, obviously. It's not a consistent income that's coming in. Um, yeah, so, so could you answer that for me, please? Yep. Interesting the, question. The, the, uh, the child support guidelines generally direct the courts to look at a person's line 150 uh, income on their income tax return as the presumptive amount of income that will be used uh, for to determine their support for the following year. Um, 
Now, the, of course, line 150 would include the capital gains that, uh, that you would gain on these stocks. So you're at risk there. However, the child support guidelines specifically do provide that the court can consider whether a gain is a one-time thing. If it's not a reoccurring year-to-year type of event, um, then the court should look at it as a one-time gain and, and not include that income, um, uh, in determining your, uh, your child support, uh, going forward. Uh, if it's something where you're uh, somebody who, who buys and sells stocks regularly and some years you have some gains and some years you have some losses, then the court might say, well, this is a regular occurrence that you have gains and losses and we're going to, we're going to take all of those into account every year. Uh, but if you're somebody who just one time after 10 years sells a bunch of stock and has a big gain, um, you, you do have an argument before the court to exclude that part of your income as a one time gain that will not be recurring. Okay. Does that help, Harge? That does help, Mr. Fox. Thank you very much. Well, thanks Thanks for joining us this morning. So the, in other words, he was liquidating some assets in order to buy a home, which is pretty much what yes. you have to do to come up with a down payment in Metro Vancouver these days. Sure. So that's a one-off event, yeah. typically, isn't yeah. it? Well, it's a quirk of our tax laws, too, that capital gains are uh, taxable uh, as income. So they show up on your line 150. It's CRA's fault, not uh, not no. the listeners. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, Hannah, good morning. Thank you for waiting. Yes, good morning. I just have a question regarding power of attorney. Yes. Um, I'm planning on making one out to uh, for a family member. You're you're going to designate, designate a family member family to be exactly. to have your power of attorney. No, I just want to have my, no my rights. If I have that, can they? If I'm still, uh, you know, healthy and fit. Can they make use of that in any way, the, the power of attorney? Well, generally, uh, it's wrong, unique here. Generally, they can. But what you've got to turn your mind to is uh, why is it that you want someone to do this for you? And that will determine uh, which approach you go for, whether it's a representation agreement uh, or uh, whether you will simply go with a power of attorney. Yeah. Is it just one or two transactions coming up or for a long time? No, it would be in case of emergencies ah. like health problems, right, hospitalization right. and things like that, if it comes up. Right. But I just want to be on the safe side and have someone look after my... Well, I can honestly tell you the smart thing to do in your circumstances is to go to a lawyer and get an individual uh, individual approach okay. to that because there are many more factors than you and I have just uh, discussed here that would go into that. Yeah. Uh, no decision is going to be fatal, but uh, some decisions are going to uh, leave people who are looking after your things in far better shape if you do have an accident than making uh, a mistake in one direction. Exactly. So do see a lawyer. Don't simply uh, don't simply rely on your instincts on this one. Hannah, yeah, do you do you have a person in mind? Do you have the you, you're obviously going you're yes. being you're yes. being active here. You're you're yes. looking out for I just yourself. Want to look ahead. Right. Well, good and, move. And uh, yes, I have my niece, who, uh, and she will look after hopefully. But she lives in in Ontario. Ah. Okay. So, uh, she's coming out in, at the end of the month, or in August, rather. And so we want to go see a lawyer at that time, and I'll make out a power of attorney. 
That's a very good decision, and it's a very good thing to do, especially with the young woman who is going to be that person representing you in the office with you and the lawyer at the same time. Stuart, that would be the best of possible circumstances, uh, yeah, wouldn't it? Yes, I suspect in Hannah's case that it may be that she needs a representation agreement rather right. than a power of attorney. Sure. And because those agreements set out that the, the, the person who you're appointing only takes control if certain circumstances in your health occur. What you don't want to do is sign over to your niece a power of attorney that simply enables her to go into your bank and take out your money right. or sell your property regardless of your mental status because that's what a power of attorney can do. They have full power over they, – they can take – they sign on your behalf and you're legally bound by what your power of attorney does. And that's what Hannah was alluding yes. to in her original question. A little nervous there. And why wouldn't you be if you're inexperienced with this area of the law? Back to the phones. Blair, thank you for waiting. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Um couple of questions. So, first of all, a common law relationship that started before the legislation, is it captured by the legislation? Good question. And, and, and the second question is, uh, what happens in a common law relationship where prop, real property, uh, like a condo or something, actually existed, one spouse owned it before the relationship started? How does that come into play? Right. Well, those are excellent questions, both of them. So if the uh, common law relationship started before the change in the legislation, it is still captured. All right. Uh, and I'm assuming, of course, that it didn't end uh, before the legislation came in. Is that right? Right. Okay. So that relationship is captured. So that's number one. Number so it's two. under the Family Law Act. Yes. So uh, number two, the property that you brought in uh, and, and that had nothing to do with your common-law spouse, uh, that will be excluded property, but any increase in market value of that property from the time that you got together until the time that you separate, that increase is split equally. All right, and, and that's regardless of whether your common law spouse ever paid towards the mortgage or paid any of the household bills. She may have had a zero income for ten years, and you paid a hundred thousand a year on the mortgage. Right, and the house has increased in value a million dollars. If it's increased from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation by a million dollars, the common law spouse will get half of that. Half of uh, half the of the half, half of the increase, increase, regardless of her contributions. But the deed remains the exclusive property of the owner who had it before the that's relationship correct. began. Okay, one more. And uh, Sylvia, the last question to you is, is front, uh, for our guests, what, what's on your mind? Well, similar to the previous question just asked about common law, you mentioned that the, the value is shared. However, what about debt load? Is debt load equally shared that was accrued in that same time too? That is an excellent question. Stuart? Uh, yeah, under the Family Law Act, um, for the first time, the Family Relations Act that preceded it had no reference to debt. The Family Law Act ch- treats debts just like assets. So any debts accumulated from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation that were incurred for a family purpose are subject to a 50-50 split between the parties. Oh, okay. And regardless of which spouse incurred them, if they were incurred for paying for restaurants or clothing, or just everyday living expenses, those are all subject to a 50-50 split on marriage breakdown. So the Split door, Ron, swings both ways for assets and liabilities. Absolutely. And that trip to Vegas that you didn't tell your wife about, that's not a family debt. Uh, (laughs) When that shows up on your credit card, that's your baby. Ah, okay. Interesting stuff. Uh, Gentlemen, just a a couple of minutes to to, to have with you before I I have to let you go. Uh, First and foremost, to bring the attention of all of our listeners to the website, which is ZuckermanLaw.ca. And uh, Zuckerman is Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, the Zuckerman Law Group in Surrey and Yaletown. Uh, And you can contact uh, these people through uh, the main number is 604-575-5464. 
there are other lots of contact information. It's a very good website, and uh, you can uh, email and and state your case and uh, book an appointment yes. in either Yale Town or Surrey, whichever is most convenient. There are seven lawyers and an intern in the firm right now. That's right. right. The intern is, is an articled student, so we we take on articled students, and then they 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 intern with us for a period of about nine months, and after they pass the bar exams, they become a lawyer, and they may be invited to join our firm. So at this point, we have seven lawyers, uh, two very senior lawyers. We have intermediate lawyers. We have junior lawyers, and we have an article student. And the rates of each of those lawyers uh, fluctuate depending on their years of experience. And you're, and you're very upfront about what costs what. Th- that's the main thing. Is we in our first meeting, we will talk about what your look, what your rights and your obligations are. So your answer, we'll answer all your questions, but we'll also inform you about what each step of the litigation may cost you, depending on which level of lawyer, lawyer you're using to do it. So no hidden surprises, in other words, and that's, that's a very important part. That's what scares a lot of people off about lawyers, Ron. You guys are expensive. Oh my gosh, it's going to cost me a million dollars to sit down and have a chat with you. Well, that's rubbish. It's free. The first one. The first 30 minutes is free. There you go. And, and after that, uh, we charge our ordinary rate. But I have to say that for the people who come in five years later with a broken down agreement they did themselves and finding out that they have to pay tens of thousands to litigate it or to, to defend it, um, sadly, those people realize they should have spent some money in the first place. Up front, uh, yeah. a, little, a little up front rather than a whole lot down the road. Yeah. Zuckermanlaw.ca. Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink. Gentlemen, thanks for coming in. Wonderful to meet you. We should do this again sometime. I would love to. Our, our listeners clearly enjoyed you as well. We'll take a break, and we've got a couple more consumer quickies and a steel report coming right up. And once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink from the Zuckerman Law Group for a very informative visit. And thanks for all your calls, too. That was fun. Time now for the Steel Report. And this week, Linda looks at how this summer's hottest toy could be a hazard. I'm Linda Steele, and this is your Steel Report. One of the hottest toys this year is the fidget spinner, but some parents are issuing a warning that the popular game may be a choking hazard. Firefighter Shane Hotsclaw says he had to rescue his daughter Emma after a small metal bearing inside her fidget spinner came loose and flew into her mouth. Emma ended up swallowing the metal piece, which was the size of a quarter. Dr. Nina Shapiro from UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital says there have actually been a few cases in the past few months of children needing surgery after swallowing bearings from the toys. I think parents need to educate their children about the risks of these. So I think just not to give these to younger children, children under six, and for the older children to really explain that these are toys, but they also have risks. They should not be put in their mouths. They should not be taken apart. Incidents involving fidget spinners are being investigated by the Consumer Products Safety Commission, and experts are warning parents about even smaller fidget spinners, which could add extra danger for young children. I'm Linda Steele, and that's your Steele Report. Thank you, Linda. Steele and Drex, weekdays 2 to 6 on News Talk 980 CKNW. A couple more consumer quickies before we have to go. Amid growing concerns about the overuse of antibiotics in farm animals and on the heels of a very successful no artificial anythings in its products here in Canada by A&W, Burger King has joined the list of fast food chains that will scale back on the use of drugs that are medically important to human beings. For livestock farmers, these 
antibiotics can, for example, produce larger chickens. Unfortunately, the continuous low-dose use of antibiotics also contributes to the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, making those very drugs less effective or even useless for the treatment of actual disease. In its latest sustainability report, Restaurant Brands International, the parent company to both Burger King and Tim Hortons, vowed to cut the use of antibiotics in the chicken supply for both restaurant chains by the end of next year. The company, which also purchased Popeyes earlier this year, said it plans to roll out the new policy at all of its brands, but did not provide a time frame for the change. In a recent report card on restaurants' antibiotics policies by a group of public health advocates, Burger King was one of 16 chains that scored a failing grade. Tim Hortons and Popeyes were not on that list. Now, McDonald's, Wendy's, KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut have all already made some commitments to sourcing chickens that are raised with fewer or no antibiotics. And the uh, the people at the National Resources Defense Council say we have officially passed the tipping point on antibiotics use in chicken served by the U.S. fast food industry. This uh, will allow uh, uh, to the keep our life-saving drugs working when sick people need them. And now, of course, they're all set to move on to beef and pork. That is uh, our show for the day. Uh, thanks again to Stuart Zuckerman for a really informative visit, along with Ron Hunick. And thank you for joining us. ZuckermanLaw.ca, by the way, is their website. Ben Dooley produces this show. The steady hand of Tyson Pellegrini is on the controls. I'm Sterling Fox. Join us again next Sunday at 11 for another edition of Vancouver Consumer. And stay tuned now for Charmaine De Silva, up next on News Talk 980 CKNW. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.